0: more than a million people go to google and ask who am i it's a question that we know we need the answer to but many of us if we're being honest don't exactly know how to answer in fact if i were to have you in my office and i were to ask you and we were to start writing it on the board and i would i were to say who are you what would you say Well, if you were to ask me that question about who I am, there's a lot of answers that I might give. There's a lot of layers to who I understand myself to be and depending upon my relationship with you and depending upon the context of our conversation, there's a lot of things that I might say. If you were to ask me who I am, I might come to you and I might start by talking about my roles. I am a husband, I am a daddy, I am a pastor. I might talk to you about, my personality—I'm an introvert, and I'm a perfectionist. I'm ambitious, and I'm driven. My Myers-Briggs is INTJ. Does that tells you anything about me? Right? For those of you that have a context for that, I, I might tell you about my faith and my culture. I am a devout Christian. And I was raised in the rural South. I might tell you about just my feelings. I might tell you that because I'm a perfectionist, I often feel like a failure that I'm a worrier and I worry a lot. I I might explain to you about how it's difficult for me to feel like I fit into any room that I walk into. So if you were to ask me who I am, I would have all of these layers and all of these answers. But honestly, beneath all the layers at the bare metal in the foundation, who actually am I? Beneath all of that, who am I really? And that's the question that I want you to answer. I actually believe that this is one of the primary purposes of the Bible, that one of the primary purposes of the Bible is to tell us who God is, who we are, and why it matters. The Bible explains to us who made us and why he made us so that we can know how we fit into what he has done. And so over these next three weeks, that's what we're going to do. We're going to go to the Bible and we're going to ask the question, who am I that the Bible can begin to inform our concept of self-perception and identity that our identities might be reconstructed in what I think is a healthier and more helpful way. And so this morning, I want us to start at the, at the ground level, the theological foundation and basis for the identity that we've been given all the way back here at the origin, at the book of our origins, in the book of Genesis that we can see. And so asking that question, who am I? The first thing I want you to see is that someone has to tell us. Someone has to tell us. My grandmother's here this morning and when I was growing up in a teenager, my grandmother would take me to a lot of my doctor's appointments. And my grandmother, what she would do on these doctor's appointments very often is she would always take the scenic routes, right? She would take me down these old country back roads, and she would take me down these country back roads for the purpose of telling me stories. And so she would drive down the country back roads and she would point over to a field and she'd say, that's where your mama Brown used to pick cotton. That's where your great grandmother used to go to school. This is where many of our family members are buried. That's where your, your Paw Brown built a cabin with his own hands. And that's the cabin. You can see it off in the distance. That's the cabin where, where I was born. This is how we got from this piece of land over to this piece of land. Now that's not unique to us. As you probably have had similar experiences, many of you in your family, but what is my grandmother doing? She's trying to tell me who I am. She's trying to tell me who I am. She's giving me some context for my existence, the backstory behind my story so that I could know. Why? Because I didn't know those things intuitively. We don't come with software pre-downloaded that tells us exactly who we are and why we matter. We have some sense of, of, of a greater existence. We have some sense of eternity being placed in our hearts, But our self-perception is not self-actualized. It's not self-discovered. Our self-perception is learned. It's learned. It's interesting here that what we see is this is exactly how the Bible opens up. That what you have in the Bible is it begins in the crescendo moment on the end of the sixth day when when all of creation is coming to this climactic moment when humankind is going to be created We're given insight that we're not given into any other part of creation. That there's this intra-Trinitarian conversation among the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, determining exactly how they're going to make the man. And what it says is they say, let us, I love that Trinitarian language, right? Let us, Father, Son, Spirit, make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock. So it starts off by saying, this is who man is going to be. God makes the decision as to who man is going to make and how he's going to design man and what particular qualities man is going to have. And then the very next thing, after man is created, he does something different with the man than he does with any of the creeping crawlies, with any of the fish swimming in the sea, with any of the the majestic heavens that have been painted across the sky. He has a conversation with the man. So God decides who man is going to be. And then in verse 28, God speaks to them. And God says to them, and what does he tell them? He's telling them, this is who you are. This is why you are created. This is what your purpose is. This is how you fit. That God, from the beginning, begins to teach his creation, the climax of his creation, his image bearers, mankind, who they are so that they can have a self-perception that is accurate, so that they can understand the role that they are to play within the world. And so again, we see here that this is not self-discovered. This is not self-actualized. This is assigned by God, taught by God that identity is not created by you. Identity does not evolve over time. Identity at its most fundamental level is given to you. It's given to you by God from the beginning. Now, that's not to say that we don't have layers to our identity that develop over time. That's certainly true. That's not to say that all of us aren't unique and individual in who we are. That's certainly true. There are things that are true about who I am that are different than about who you are. There are, are things different about my experiences that have shaped me in particular ways that are different than the experiences that you have that have shaped the person that you've become. That We have these layers to our identity that are different but what we're talking about is our fundamental identity, our foundational identity. See, there is an identity that all of these layers rests upon. There's an identity that all of these layers rely upon. And if you get the foundational identity wrong, if you get the the bare metal, ground level, bedrock identity wrong, all of these other layers actually begin to crumble on top of it. And so I think what we see in the first two chapters of Genesis are actually four components to the identity that has been given to us by God. Four components. And, and you have to understand these if you're gonna understand anything else that we're gonna talk about. And we're, and we're gonna to try to get really practical over the course of this series in the next three weeks. But this is the bare metal. And we have to do a quick flyover. If you have your sermon notes, they're not blanks, but I have given these in there so that you can see. So what's the first thing that we see about our identity? The first thing that I want you to see is that we are significant and we are special. We are special and we are significant. Why why do I say that? Well, it starts off. There's a reason that in the Bible it's recorded that we are the image bearers of God, made in the likeness of God, that we are different than all of the cows and we are different than all of the oxen and we are different than all of the fish. We are set apart from even the angelic beings, Hebrews chapter two tells us. We are different in the way that we are uniquely imprinted with the thumb of God, his very very likeness, that we have a resemblance in us. And this is the starting line of who we are. Now we could take the next 12 months and unpack what it means that we're made in the image of God. And so we are not going to be able to even scratch the surface. And And I wanna say also, because this is the starting line, Each of the other three components that we're going to see really flow out of this one reality that we are image bearers of almighty God. But in its simplest form, what it means is is that we have a resemblance to God in the way that a son resembles his father. That the way that God creates, there's something creative in us. The way that that God is uh, eternal, we are immortal. That there is something that, that we are going, once we are created, we are going to live Forever. That just as God has a sense of holiness and righteousness that we are going to have as we see a sense of morality. That that there is a dignity that is assigned to humankind from the beginning that sets us apart and distinguishes us from all of creation. And that dovetails with the why of our existence. That dovetails with the significance of our assistance. That we are not just special just to be sat on a shelf like a knickknack. We are set apart with his image for a purpose. And what is that purpose? Well, he, he tells them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heaven, over every living thing that moves on the earth. What is God telling him? that I have placed my image in you, that you have the thumbprint of my glory on your very identity. And so your responsibility now is to now spread my glory to the faces of the earth. And by the way, I think there is here the first fruits of the great commission that what we're seeing here, right? That what we have the responsibility to do as those who bear the image of God is to spread the glory of God to the ends of the earth. How do we spread the glory of God to the ends of the earth? Well, originally, primarily, it is by having more image bearers, by being fruitful and multiplying those that bear God's image, spreading them to the ends of the earth. And as we spread to the ends of the earth, what are we doing? We are spreading the news that there is one who has and reigns with dominion, that we have a derivative of authority in the likeness of God's authority that allows us to subdue and bring all of the earth beneath it, that we were created special and we were created with a significance that is unique among the creation. Now I want you to see some of the other, uh, the, the other components as they flow out of that. Not only are we created special and significant, significant and special, but we are created, and don't miss this, we are created dependent and blessed. Dependent and blessed. Look at verse 29. He says, and God said. Okay, I think these are significant. We're going to look at the four different times in Genesis 1 and Genesis chapter 2 when God speaks to the man. Okay, the first time he tells them, This is who you are. You're an image bearer who is charged to go and bless and fill the earth with my glory. The second thing that he says to them is, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. So, fundamental to our identity is that, yes, we are like God, but we are not God. God does not need food to eat, God is self sufficient. God does not need to sleep and to rest. God never sleeps or slumbers. God in and of himself is able to have all that he needs within his very nature, within his very being, to be able to sustain him for all eternity. We're not made that way. You and I were created with limitations. You and I were created from the beginning with a dependence upon the Lord that without him, we would perish. Without him, we would not survive. That we are designed from the beginning not to be able to bear the weight of the world, not to be able to have all the answers in and of ourselves, not to be self-sufficient but instead to be reliant upon the one who has made us. But blessed be the name of our God. He has blessed us. He has given them in the garden everything that they need. All of the plants that they can see in all the fruit of all the trees that they can behold. These things have been given to them because God is a good provider. So he has made them dependent upon him in one sense, but on the other sense, they can depend upon him joyfully. He is always going to meet their needs. He's always going to supply everything that he promises to provide for them. And so there's this beautiful relationship formed between man and God from the beginning. Now, as we move forward into the second chapter of Genesis, really the second chapter of Genesis is an expansion and an elaboration of that final day of creation in Genesis chapter one. And so you see even more dialogue between God and man as God begins to talk to the man. So it says again, the Lord commanded to man. So this is the third time that God speaks to the man. And the Lord, God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so what's the third thing that we see? That man is moral and accountable. Man is moral and accountable. That again, we come and because we have God's image in us, we are unique among the creation in that we have a moral compass, in that we have a conscience. We have some bearing, some sense of right and wrong, some sense of eternity that's been placed on us. Now, it's important for us to step aside and to acknowledge what the Bible says that is very distinct from our naturalistic culture. What this is saying from the beginning and going to great lengths to do so is to say that you are not just some animal with a big brain. You are not just some other cog in the creation, you are distinct. You are distinct in dignity. You are distinct in purpose. You are distinct in design. You are distinct in nature, that you are set aside by God. You are one who is moral. There is no morality in the jungle. There is no morality in the savannas. There is no morality in the woodlands. There is no morality there, but in you, in the civilizations in which you live, in the settlements that you have, regardless of how primitive or sophisticated it may be, what you will find there at the center is some sense of morality because we have been designed that way intrinsically from the nature, from the beginning in the nature of God. And with that comes an accountability before God, that we have a responsibility to live, in our, live out our morality in a sense that honors what God has said. God has clarified the boundaries of that morality with Adam and with Eve and said, this is what it looks like for you to live as moral beings, to live within the confines and the boundaries and the, that I have established for you that are for your own good. And so we see limits placed on them again, don't we? They can eat of everything in the garden except for that one tree. There is a limit placed upon them based upon the morality that God has imprinted upon them with his thumbprint. Now I wanna stop for just a second and talk about these limits. These center two, this dependent and the sense of morality both bring with them this idea that humankind has been designed and intended from the beginning to have limitations. But these are beautiful these are beautiful. Do not resent your limitations. See, it's through our limitations that we were intended to relate to God. So being dependent and blessed, this is the way that we experience God's love for us, isn't it? This is how we experience God's love for us, that we are dependent upon God and yet God will provide for us. We need God and yet as often as we need God, we can depend upon God. And so it is through this limit, these limits that God reigns out upon us His love. Now, how do we express our love to God? We express our love to God by working within the confines of the morality and the holiness that he's established. And so the limit of our dependence is his love toward us. And the limits of our morality is the way we express our love toward him to say that, God, I trust that your way is better than my way. I I trust that the boundaries that you have set for me are, are healthy, right, and good. I trust that you understand the way that I'm made and the way the world is made better than I understand it. And so I will express by faith in you, I will live according to what you have established. And the final component that we see is especially relevant in the day that we we live. He says, the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make for him a helper fit for him. So the first time we see something that's not good in the Bible is the loneliness of Adam, that it's not good for him to be alone. So what are we learning about who we are and the identity that God has assigned to us from the beginning? That we are social and complementary. That we are social and we are complementary. That we were not designed to live independent of other people. We were not designed to live off the grid on, as a hermit way away from others. We were designed to live with one another and for one another and to contribute to one another. That it is not good for man to be alone. And we see that not only was was a second person made, but she was made different, she was made unique, and she was made to complement him, that we are made not just to live uh, with one another, but we are designed and intended from the beginning to complement each other, to come together with one another, and to fill up for each other what is lacking. We see this originally don 't we that God created them as complementary genders God created them with complementary sex organs. God created them with complementary roles and purposes. And I believe that this finds its origin all the way back into the intra-trinitarian relationship between God, the Father, and the Spirit. There is a perfect community within God himself. And each of them have unique roles that they that they perform as part of the Godhead without competition, without division, without, di- without uh, lowering the dignity or the esteem of the other. They operate within community complementing one another perfectly. And this is the picture being made in God's image of how we're supposed to live. So let's think about this one more time. All right, so there's four components to our identity that we are special and significant. We are dependent and blessed. We are moral and accountable. We are social and complementary. Can we just stop for a second and, and ask the question, how different is that than the way that you view yourself? How different is that than the way that you view yourself? Do you view yourself as special and significant? Do you view yourself as dependent and blessed? Do you view yourself as moral and accountable? Do you believe, do you view yourself as social and complimentary? Or would you define yourself in a different way? See, there's a lot of confusion when it comes to our identity, isn't, it? isn't there? There's a lot of confusion when it comes to who we believe ourselves to be. And honestly, honestly, there's a big difference very often in who God has said we are fundamentally and who we understand ourselves to be fundamentally. Why is that? Well, I think that gets to the second point. Competing voices confuse us. Competing voices confuse us. That what we have as we come into Genesis chapter three is the introduction of a competing voice, a voice that aims to rival the voice of God. And what does this competing voice have to say? This competing voice has to say the exact opposite of what God has just said. This competing voice comes in and says, God says that you're special. But God doesn't tell you how special you really are. You actually can be an equal with God. You can be just like God. God's trying to keep you from something. God comes and God tells you that you're dependent and God tells you that you're dependent because God wants to keep you weak. You can actually be independent from God. God tells you that you're moral and accountable, that you will surely die if you eat of the tree that he has forbidden. But you are not accountable. Surely you will not die. You are self-autonomous. You are able to determine what is real and not real, what is moral and immoral, what is true and not true. You can do this all in of yourself. And of course, we can see today the impact that he's had in seeking to unrival and, uh, unravel the, the gender identity and the, and the ability for us to understand that we have been created social and complementary, and all these things and, and the competition that exists between the genders and between all of the, the differences that we have With one another. So, what we see from the beginning is that this competing voice comes in, and his aim is to deconstruct from you what God has told you about yourself and to reconstruct for you a new identity, a new self perception that moves you away from God, away from the design of God, and deprives you of the ability to flourish as God originally intended. To move you away from God's design, and by moving you away from God's design, breaking that fellowship that you have with God and disabling your ability to become fully who God intends for you to be. And so we can probably look in our lives and we can begin to recognize that this is the seedbed for gender dysphoria, and this is the seedbed for self loathing, and this is the seedbed for personal insecurity that a competing voice has come into your life to tell you different things about you other than what God has said. Now, for you, it probably hasn't been a talking snake. And if it has, I wanna talk. I want us to have a conversation, have coffee. I need to hear about it. But for most of you, you didn't have a talking snake come up to you and tell you something different than God has said in his word. But the voice of the serpent has broken through in your life nonetheless. The voice of the serpent may have come to you through an abusive dad who have come and convinced you about some things that aren't true of yourself. The voice of the serpent may have come to you through sexual abuse and convinced you some, about some things that, that aren't true. The voice of the serpent may have come to, come to you through a peer group, through a fraternity, through a sorority, to convince you that morality and accountability are different than what they really are. The, the voice of the serpent may have come to you through the winds of the culture or through the education that you receive or through some books that you've read or some worldviews that you've been exposed to. The, the winds of the serpent may have come to you through political pundits and all of the propaganda that fills the airways today. The voice of the serpent has come to you and it has sought to deconstruct what God has said about you and to reconstruct for you a new identity. And so the result is, the result is is that we have all these competing voices offering all of these rotten materials, these new materials for which we can reconstruct who we actually are. You see, what, that's exactly what Satan does. Satan wants to come in and confuse. We see that right out of the gate, right? Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say? This is the opening line of Satan's spiel, right? And what's he saying? When you ask that question, what are you wanting to do? You're wanting to create inner turmoil, right? There's a joke around the office that, you know, you can believe something really, really staunchly and you can be able to well defend it. And they'll come and, you know, and somebody will come and they'll they'll tell me and I'll say, is that really what that means? And I may not even have a rebuttal, but ask John about this, ask Logan about this. All of a sudden you start doubting it. I thought I really knew, I don't really, really knew it. Without even giving any kind of explanation, you can just ask that question, and it creates internal conflict, doesn't it? That's what the serpent is doing. The serpent is creating an internal conflict, causing them to doubt and to, to be unsure of what seemed so certain, so plain, so obvious before. That what he's wanting to do is he's wanting to create a narrative that is is alternative to the one that they've heard from God. He's wanting to create a new narrative revolving around their identity so that he can reconstruct it. And he does this by the introduction of new materials. What does he say? He says in verse four, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. This is a new material, isn't it? God has said, eat of this tree and you will die. Satan says, ah, I'm not so sure about that. You won't actually die. It's an alternate narrative, isn't it? It's something different than what God has said. Then he continues in verse five. He says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the narrative continues forward. Not only will you not die, now you will really live. Now your life will be really satisfying. Now you will have real happiness and real joy. God was withholding all of this from you. God was keeping back from you all of these good things that he knew about, but you didn't know about so that you wouldn't. And so Satan comes and he introduces new material. God is keeping these things from you. God is trying to stifle you. God is trying to suppress you. God is trying to keep you old fashioned and out of the thing. And so, so he's reconstructing by introducing these new materials. He's introducing new narratives so that you can begin to fill in the blanks and decide something new. there's a question here that's facing Adam and Eve. Who will they believe? In other words, we could say that the question is, is who am I? Am I who God says that I am? Or am I who the serpent says that I am? Am I the, am, am I one who is special and significant, dependent, and blessed, moral, and accountable, social, and complimentary? Or, or, or am I one who can be a God? Am I one who can be independent? Am I one that is unaccountable? Am I one that gets to set and establish all of the rules? Well, like our original parents, that's the question that's facing us this morning. That's what we have to decide. We have to decide which narrative is the truth. We have to decide who we really are. Are we who God says we are? Or are we who the serpent's voice has convinced us that we are? See, from the beginning, we've heard a lot of competing voices in our lives. From the beginning, we've heard a lot of competing voices in our life. From the beginning, as we said, the serpent's voice has broken through. Let's just think of what this could look like. For many of you, your parents, they told you that you could be anything that you wanted to be. For others of you, your parents told you you'd never amount to much at all. Neither of these is the narrative of God. Neither of them. M- many of you, your, your peer groups told you that if, if you would do certain things and be a certain person and become a certain person that, that you could fit in. And so by doing that, you have figured out how to fit into virtually any peer group that you can, you can encounter. Others of you, you, you've never really felt like you fit in anywhere. And every peer group that you've tried to enter made you feel like a greater failure and, a, and, and more rejected and more lonely and more distant. Neither of these are the narrative of God. For, for some of you, you've come and your experience in church is that God is out there and God is always trying to get you and God is always trying to come after you. And other, others of you were raised in faith traditions that said God really doesn't care what you do or how you live or what it amounts to. Neither of these, neither of these are the narrative of God. All of these are rotted materials. All of these are competing voices that are coming in to construct for you a new identity. And the result is, is that there is a gap between our given and our constructed identities. There's a gap between our given and our constructed identities. See, as we've already seen, every single one of us has a given identity. Every single one of us has an identity assigned by God from birth. That identity is that we are special and significant, dependent and blessed, moral and accountable, social and complimentary. That our given identity is what God says about us. And every single one of us has a constructed identity. Every single one of us, some of us have some of God's materials and some of us have none of God's materials, but all of us have some sense of a constructed identity on who we understand ourselves to be. And we take the materials our parents gave us and we take the materials that our culture has given us and we take the materials that our education has given us and we take the materials that our suffering and our experiences have given us and we take the the materials that put the, Political pundits that we follow give us, we take all of the materials of all the experiences that we have and we construct our idea of, of our sense of self. And what happens is, is very often there is a gap, a gap between what God has said about us and what we come to believe about ourselves. Think about that in Adam and Eve's life. God has said that they are special and significant, but the competing voice has come in and he has said that they are gods. They are unloved. He has said that they are dependent and blessed, but the enemy has come in and said that they are independent. They are unappreciated for who they are. God has said that they are moral and accountable. The enemy has come in and said they rule. They are kings. They decide. They are unaccountable. He has come and told them that they are social and complimentary. They are autonomous. They are being withheld from what is good. And so what we see here is that there is a gap between what God has said about them and what they come to believe about themselves. And so if I were to have you in my office and I were to ask you who you are, would there be a gap? Where would the gap be? Would you believe what God has said? Would you rec- would you recognize in yourself your God given, sign from eternity past identity, who God has declared as the bedrock of who you are? Or 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 would you have a house built out of rotten wood that seems to be crumbling around you? Because you see, the identity gap can ruin us. The identity gap can ruin us. Adam and Eve by the lie. Adam and Eve by the lie. Satan comes and he promises them that they can enjoy their life to the fullest. He comes in and he promises them that they can can know greater pleasure and they can know greater satisfaction. They can have greater knowledge and greater insight and greater experiences. And so they go and they they take of that fruit. And what's their experience? Verse seven, then the eyes of both were opened. And they knew that they were naked. I'm sorry, right there. They knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So what happens? What do they do? Expecting to have greater pleasure, expecting to have greater experience. And this has been so many of the experiences in this room expecting to have, have deeper sense of purpose and a deeper sense of matter. They go and they, they listen to the competing voices only to find on the other side that they get to experience something that was new to them but is normal for us, shame, shame. I wonder how many of you, you feel like everywhere you go, there is an abiding sense of shame that follows you. Shame that comes from events from your childhood, shame that comes from things that you've done, shame that comes from lies that you've bought, shame from things that you have come to believe about yourself, that you have come to believe are at the center of who you are, and you are repulsed by your very own sense of self. Notice how God responds, so interesting. Verse 11, this is God talking. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Isn't that an interesting way for God to re-engage with his creation that has disobeyed him? What is he saying? Where did you hear that about yourself? Isn't that interesting? Where did you hear that about yourself? That you have to learn who you are. You have to learn what you are. And someone has come in and they have told you something different than what I have said. Someone has come in and they have revealed to you that you are naked and being naked, you are now ashamed. Who has given and introduced these new rotten materials into your life? Who has told you? How did you come to learn this about yourself? See what God's saying there is that a life built out of the wrong materials will ruin you, will ruin you. An identity constructed out of the competing voices of this world will ruin your life. Many of you have the wounds and the scars to declare it. Many of you don't yet believe it, but I'm telling you what we see from our original parents is that an identity constructed out of the materials other than what God has given will ruin your life. So what do you believe about yourself? Who are you? People come into my office all the time and I ask them to tell me, who, I explain the difference in a given and a constructed identity and, I, and I'll ask them, who are you? And they'll, they'll come and they'll say I'm a failure or they'll say I'm worthless. They might say I'm LGBTQ. They might say I'm single, divorced, angry, It might say, "I'm hopeless. I'm lonely. I am fill in the blank." What would you say? You see, there's a big gap between what this is and what God has said. And if you believe these things about yourself, it will ruin your life. When there is a gap, a chasm between what God has said and what you believe, the only hope, the only hope is that there is going to be an intervention that will deconstruct all of this rotted wood and rip it out of your house and give you something solid and good and whole. This was Adam and Eve's hope. And this is our hope. This is where I want us to land this morning. Look at what God says at the end of Genesis chapter three. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothing and that God makes a provision for their shame. God makes a provision by the shedding of blood and the sacrifice of animals to cover their sinfulness. And that is what God has done for each of us through the person of Christ that what we're going to see in high definition next Sunday is that the cross bridges the gap between our given identity and our constructed identity so that all of that rotted wood can go away and all of that identity crisis can be answered so that we can live as whole and healthy people in the image of God, flourishing, special and significant, dependent and blessed, moral and accountable, social and complimentary in a way that enables us to flourish and to thrive. How? How? Christ. Christ is going to reconcile the gap. Christ is going to overcome all of the destruction. Christ is going to bring clarity into the midst of the confusion. So this may be where you are, but brothers and sisters, you don't have to stay there. Friends, you don't have to stay there because Christ has come. This morning, I wonder, I wonder if what you need to do is come and at the altar lay down all of the lies that you've believed about yourself. I wonder if this morning the Lord has shown you all of the competing voices that have come and sought to confuse you and take you away from who God has made you to be. And I wonder if this morning you would come and by faith to say, I'm laying these things down, God, and I choose to believe about myself only what you believe about me. I wonder if this morning it feels like you're so far away from where God would have you to be and who God has designed you to be that you see no hope. I wonder if this morning you would say, today, Cody, today I want to trust Christ for the first time and I want to walk over the bridge of the cross that I can fully realize this new identity that has been accomplished for me. This morning we're gonna have elders that'll be down front. Or maybe you just need somebody to pray with. Maybe you just need somebody to walk you through some brokenness. However the Lord sees fit, would you move this morning? Let me pray for us.